walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Hey everybody, this is episode 19 of the Camino Podcast. I'm Dave Whitson, and it's a beautiful sunny day in Portland, Oregon, not too hot, and I am excited to talk with all of you about one of my favorite walks, the Via Francigena. Early in the history of this podcast, a handful of months ago, I spoke with Sandy Brown about the Way of St. Francis in Italy. And the Via Francigena is the other major pilgrimage route going into Rome. And it starts all the way back in Canterbury, England, moves through France, through Switzerland, and then in Italy through the Aosta Valley, the Po Valley, the Apennine Mountain Range, Tuscany, and then on into Lazio and, and Rome at the center of it. It's uh, an incredible walk. And while I've never done the parts in England or France, I've loved, loved walking through Switzerland and Italy. My experience with the Via Francigena goes back a long ways. I actually set foot on it for the first time in 2004. That was also the year I led my first high school trip, and I vividly remember the walk back from Finisterre, at the end of that trip, all of the students in my group were s- spread out in front of me on the on the road back from the lighthouse into the town. It was late at night. It was pitch black. The sun had set. And I remember my co-leader, John, saying something to me about, where are we going to go next year? We've got to go to Rome next year. That's the logical progression after Santiago. And so I thought about it and figured, hey, what the heck? Let's go to Rome. So we set up a trip. We advertised it. We promoted it. And we got students to sign up for a trip on this route that I had never walked. And frankly, it didn't seem like many people had. So I started gathering materials and I booked a plane ticket to fly out to Italy in December to try to scout the route a bit. And the guidebook that I found was an Italian book uh, called Il Sentiero del Peregrino, the footpath, the track, the, the, the way of the pilgrim. And it had been published around uh, 2000 for a jubilee year. So it was a few years old. And it described... Uh, different routes that it turned out weren't really being used that much outside of that jubilee year. So I ended up in Modena in central Italy, and I thought I was going to walk from there south and ultimately arrive in in Lucca in Tuscany. And on my first day, I had a nice walk, but I struggled after a while to find a place to sleep. There really wasn't any accommodation, not pilgrim accommodation, any accommodation. And so I walked, and of course, it's December, the sun sets pretty early, 
And by 4 p.m., it was cold and it was getting dark and I had nowhere to go. And the next couple of hours were not my most enjoyable stretch of, uh, of walking in my life. But eventually I got to a small town where an hour later I caught a bus and got to a slightly larger town where there was a place to sleep and... I spent that night composing a frustrated and very nervous email to my co-leaders basically saying, we're in trouble. I bust to Luca the next day, and from there the route was a little bit more manageable, and I figured we could salvage it as a shorter trip walking from Luca to Rome, and so that's what we did in the summer of 2005, using a multilingual Vademecum guidebook that was maybe a glorified pamphlet and wasn't especially helpful, but it was something. And we relied on an Italian friend we'd met on the Camino the last year to make some calls on our behalf and help us to find some places to sleep. So we slept on church floors and in youth hostels, and most memorably, we slept in the cloister of the monastery of St. Augustine and San Gimignano. We slept in all kinds of places and we got lost every day and often quite frustrated. And at times it was outrageously hot, but it was incredible, you know, being not just pilgrims, but, but essentially pioneers because the route was so early in its recovery at that point that it was exciting. We saw one other pilgrim the whole time and it you know, it's just a very different thing walking in Italy than walking in Spain to pass through San Gimignano and Siena and some smaller hill towns that you might not know unless you were walking like San Miniato and San Quirico and Radicofani. It's incredibly memorable. And so it was enjoyable and to arrive in Rome and to be welcomed in St. Peter's is, is a great thing. At that point, there was a credential offered by an Italian confraternity, and so we had that, but frankly, there weren't many stamps at that point, so for every stamp we got in our credenziale, we would hand-draw others that we would try to find an image, a defining image from a town, like a bridge or a, a church, and then hand-draw it in as a, a replica of the, the, the stamp that we, we hoped would be there someday. And uh, when we arrived in Rome, we were taken by a, a representative of the church on a, on a tour into the, 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 the foundations of the original Vatican, and uh, it was just an incredible experience. And while it was great, it was tough, and I wasn't going to go back again with students until there was a little bit more structure, until we could have a little bit more confidence that we wouldn't get lost all the time, and that we could start further back. And so a few years later, I returned, but with a guidebook in hand, uh, the Lightfoot Guide to the Via Francigena, authored by Paul Chin and Babette Gallard, and it was great. It completely changed my experience, and I walked from Switzerland all the way to Rome, and and loved it. It was a whole different thing getting to walk through the Alps and the Apennines, two great mountain ranges, and uh, and I just can't recommend the walk strongly enough. And 
to help encourage people to think about it, I'm focusing this episode entirely on the Via Francigena, and I'm speaking in this episode with Paul Chin, the aforementioned co-author of the Lightfoot Guide to the Via Francigena, and I also speak with Kim Wilson, uh, a woman who walked the Via Francigena alone all the way from Canterbury in 2013 about her experience, and she shares some great stories about her time on the Via. So that's the plan for the day. Sit back, listen, enjoy, and, and let your imagination run wild, because this is, this is a great pilgrimage to consider. Thanks, as always, for listening. Paul Chin is the co-author of the Lightfoot Guides to the Via Francigena and the co-founder of Pilgrimage Publications. He lives in Arles, France, and our conversation spanned a couple of days because the Skype gods were unmerciful, but it all worked out in the end. My first question for Paul was what first drew him to the Via Francigena. I think we, um, we came to it the way that just about everyone I've ever met on the Francigena came to it, which is uh, we traveled to uh, Santiago de Compostelle uh, in uh, 2005. You know, this, uh, there's this cleric that once said to me, why the heck do, you, do people go on, uh, on pilgrimage at all? And uh, his answer to the question was for two reasons. One is to lose a prejudice. The other is to get a good idea. Uh, if you get one, uh, if you do both of those things, then the pilgrimage has been has been worthwhile. <laughs> and uh, we went off to Santiago because, um, like so many people, uh, we came to one of those um, watersheds in life. For us, it was um, after retirement. Essentially, we were lucky enough to take a fairly early retirement from doing quite a lot of international things, and we were looking. Uh, what shall we do now? And uh, the Camino gave us the kind of thinking space for it. And uh, I think our, our lost prejudice on that particular journey was um, for the first time in our lives, uh, having come out of the world of consultancy, we actually learned how to um, stop being quite so arrogant as we'd uh, learned to be and start ask, ask people for a little help and things like this. And hmm. that was quite a... Uh, a large learning experience for us and then um, the good idea like I say uh, like so many other people a good idea was having completed one of these things then let's go and do another one mm. we really didn't want to go for the same target we were looking for somewhere else to go uh, in our minds I suppose the three most famous Christian pilgrimage sites of the Middle Ages being uh, Santiago, uh, Rome, and, and Jerusalem. Uh, next up was going to be Rome, and then maybe next after that was going to be Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So uh, we determined to do that. There's a big question about why you get hooked as well. Um, uh, <laughs> I guess everyone has their own uh, has their own reasons. Uh, I, I I think I have to be honest and say uh, we are very secular. We're, we're not driven by any any sense of religion in doing these things. We're somewhat more humanistic by our backgrounds and, and our beliefs. But what we found, I think, on the Camino was, as I say, uh, learning something about ourselves, learning something about the rest of humanity. And uh, we wanted to continue with that kind of experience. So uh, that 
took us to the Via Francigena. Um, as you may know, our, our first journey to Santiago was on horseback, mm -hmm. and so why not to Rome on horseback? And in 2006, we set off from northern France, close to where we were living at the time, to, uh, to Rome, and found the experience to be about uh, 180 degrees different to that that we'd found on the Camino. On the Camino, we had taken the route from the Puyon Valley uh, to Santiago, mm -hmm. and there we found physical challenges, I suppose, along the way, but no navigational challenges, or not much anyway. A lot of facilities, a, a lot of uh, support. On the journey, on the Via Francigena was barren territory. Uh, we had a very limited series of maps that we had obtained from the then existing or one of the then existing societies, and we made our best endeavours to follow the map. And it was it was difficult in in a sense. It it, it had its own fulfilment because. On the Camino, one spends a lot of time interacting with other pilgrims because of the social situation you're thrown into every night, mm -hmm. sharing the same blisters, <laughs> sharing the same red wine, uh, sharing the same pasta with tomato sauce. On the Francigena, there was no one else, but in order to survive, we had to interact much more with the people along the route. Mm -hmm. So with two horses every night needing somewhere to park them and some place to, to lay our heads, we just had to find uh, 76 solutions, one for each night we were, were on the road, and that meant interacting with 76 sets of people and that was educational and, and fulfilling in its own right. So uh, we got to Rome in the end. Uh, we had uh, both of our horses in St. Peter's, in St. Peter's <laughs> Square, not in the Basilica. I had, we were there for, I think, all of 15 seconds before the horses disgraced themselves. <laughs> and we were ushered away by the um, Carabinieri. We, we were, in a sense, happy and fulfilled by the journey but in this occasion, our good idea on coming back was that we would try to make the route more accessible to other people. And we, we discovered quite quickly that uh, the Via Francigena is international in its organization, uh, somewhat Italian-centric, with all the consequent politics that go with that. And... Uh, we thought getting involved at an organizational level was probably going to be extremely frustrating. <laughs> and so we thought the best thing we could do is to design and write a better guide for the entire route and use that as a means of making it possible for others to, to follow the route. So that's kind of how, how we got started on it and our first book came out in uh, 2007 we in the end uh, created a publishing company uh, just to publish these guides um, the the books went to market in in 2007 and i uh 
benefited from those books. I've tried walking the Via Francigena in 2004-2005 and all that we had at our disposal at that point was this uh, multilingual vademicum that often got us more lost than it, it helped us. But uh, when I returned in 2009 and your books were available, they fundamentally changed my experience on the Via Francigena. So I really appreciate your work. Thanks for that, Dave. And, and as we kind of go on, the take up on the Via Francigena is improving. It's been slower, perhaps, than we might have expected. Um, but I think the arguments for following it now are perhaps increasing with the amount of both commercialism and um, congestion that's taking place along the um, Camino Frances in particular, mm -hmm. people that want to do this kind of thing. There are a set of people that enjoy, I think, the, the relative ease that, that still exists on, on the Frances, but uh, if you want to get a little bit closer to the raw experience, <laughs> then maybe the, the Francigena is the place to do it. Yeah, let's let's go back in time and then come back to the present. You know, there's the the saying, right? All roads lead to Rome, and this is one very particular route to Rome that has been identified and labeled as the Via Francigena. What's the history of this particular route connecting Canterbury and Rome? I, I think the Via Francigena has um, uh, something of a claim to a specific advantage over uh, the Camino into Spain in that uh, in effect, it, it uh, is a rather older and, in fact, predates Christianity. Mm. Um, in, in my uh, jocular way, I'd suggest that not a whole lot of stuff is new in the world, and um, the Europeans at the time, in the shape of the Romans, were very keen for, shall we call it, political integration <laughs> with, um, with Britain, and uh, Julius Caesar endeavoured to... Uh, press his case, and in order to do that, he built a, a network of Rome, roads from Rome that led to the uh, Channel Coast. Mm -hmm. The Brits being, uh, the Brits were a little resistant to political integration, and so they settled on a trade deal with uh, Caesar, and the route was used as a means of carrying goods mm -hmm. from uh, Britain to Rome, and uh, no doubt people in, in both directions as well. About a hundred years after this, somewhere in the 40s AD, uh, Claudius decided that that wasn't good enough. We really needed to have this truly deep political integration. And so he set about a conquest and this time, uh, time succeeded. And so again, the road was used as a trade and military route through uh, the next several centuries until perhaps the beginning of the decline of the uh, Roman Empire. 590-ish, uh, I believe, Pope Gregory St. Augustine mm -hmm. as his apostle to uh, Great Britain. And, of course, he essentially traveled uh, the existing route uh, that was there and uh, arrived and established the headquarters of the English Christian Church in, in Canterbury. So the route's been going for quite a while. These days, the pilgrims, though, tend to associate it more directly because of simply the existence of the first Lightfoot Guide written by uh, Sidgwick the Sirius in uh, 990 or so when he actually noted down the places where he stayed mm -hmm. on making his journey from Rome to Canterbury on his return from receiving his 
pallium or um, seal of office, if you like, from the Pope of the day. If you track his route, it falls almost exactly on the vestiges of the um, Roman road that existed in uh, Claudius and Julius Caesar's time, mm. uh, with some some small deviations. And so, generally, the proposition is that he was trying to follow this. It is the most direct route, although the only information that, in fact, we have is the places where he stayed. And there's a little interpretation over that. So um, Sidrika undertook his journey, um, called a journey in the reverse direction. One speculates as to whether he took the same route uh, going from Canterbury to Rome, uh, but given it is the most direct route and it would have been the route that was perhaps best known, it's probable, if not certain, that he took that road in, in that direction as well. Mm -hmm. As one of my friends said, well, after all, this was a business trip, wasn't it? So he wasn't uh, going sightseeing. He was um, doing this kind of thing. I guess the uh, the early Middle Ages became the um, period when um, pilgrimage was um, the thing to do, whether it would be uh, as a sense of commitment to your religion or whether it was uh, in order to gain political status within your community or uh, whether it was to um, make uh, repayment for some sin that you may have committed or crime that you may have committed. And so in the early Middle Ages, this route going to Rome uh, was I would say, as popular as the route that existed at the same time to go to Santiago to Compostela. Mm -hmm. And if you were sufficiently uh, committed um, the, in the Middle Ages, the uh, three most popular pilgrim destinations, I guess, were Santiago, Rome, and Jerusalem. If one was committed to uh, visiting Jerusalem, then one would follow the route to Rome and then onwards to the uh, Adriatic port, and from there via Greece and Turkey, and dare I say Syria and Lebanon to, uh, <laughs> to the Holy Lands, or uh, if you were a more, um, uh, more four-star pilgrim, you may take a boat from the coast, perhaps all the way to the Holy Lands, maybe by Cyprus or something like that. So I guess, I mean, in summary, it's a, it's a very old road that mm -hmm. latterly became um, a pilgrim pilgrimage route. And so uh, we found ourselves, I suppose, uh, towards the end of the 20th century, uh, both in respect of the Camino, the route to Santiago, and the route to Rome, that both of these had fell into disuse. So let's bring it up to the present then, and think about the Via Francigena as it exists today. People who have walked the Camino have a particular set of expectations in mind, and they might wonder if it translates to the, the Via Francigena. You know, is there pilgrim passports, stamps, certificate at the end? Do they need to walk a certain distance to qualify? How do all of those things work with the Via Francigena? The rediscovery, I think, followed in the wake of the rediscovery of the Camino. And so, to a large degree, the models of what takes place for the protocol of the Camino had now found their way into the protocol for the Via Francigena. Mm -hmm. So, yes, a pilgrim passport is available and 
can be presented at the Vatican or at a, a tourist center on St. Peter's Square where you will receive a testimonium. Mm -hmm. The qualification is variously said to be 100 or 140 kilometers of, of walking or around 200 kilometers if you're, if you're on a bike. The commitment to the redevelopment of the route happened maybe uh, 15 years perhaps behind that of the Camino mm -hmm. and so is rather less developed in or in all senses so for example the uh, degree of accommodation that you would find has not been developed quite so much the rationalization and the agreement of a common route and signposting perhaps not quite so much this is a little bit amplified by, uh, I believe, that the Camino, the initial paths for the Camino were created by one man with one paint pot and one brush who drew the route or drew the arrows that marked the route and then it was done. Mm -hmm. With the Via Francigena, it has been rather, um, you know the story, that a, a camel is a horse designed by a committee <laughs> uh, somewhat, the Via Francigena was designed by uh, a committee. Uh, it was adopted in principle by the Council of Europe um, fairly early on in its life, and funds and support were given to an Italian-based association with a view that it would open a truly international path. Most of the activity then took place in Italy, and so most of the money was spent in Italy, and so most of the early development for it happened in Italy. Mm -hmm. And so today, it is most complete in, in Italy. There's a well-marked route throughout Italy. There is little or no conflict over where the route goes. Generally, the signposting is good. Generally, there's affordable accommodation at reasonable interv intervals in Italy. The Swiss came fairly quickly behind and have marked a route very efficiently in a typically Swiss kind of way. Accommodation there exists but is in very touristic centers and so is in great demand and so is tricky to get and kind of expensive as a result of it. Uh, of that, I kind of exclude the top of the Alps, but the uh, areas in the Rhone Valley and around Lake Geneva are, are, are particularly tricky places to be. Mm -hmm. France, France evolves. Um, France, I think, came a little bit late to the party. And uh, there's an interesting story there that a kind of certificate of competence of a route in France is that the French walking association, hiking association, the FFRP, bless a route and give it their, uh, give it a name of a route grand rondonnet, a, a great hiker's route, a long hiker's route. And uh, a name has been reserved, a number has been reserved, the GRGR145 for the route in France. And the route has been completed and GR style signposted in two of the four regions that it crosses. Hmm. In the other two regions, work goes on. 
a little more quickly in the region near the Swiss border, a little less quickly in the region of Picardy. However, I have to say that having the GR status is not entirely good news. There are some positive things with respect to the clarity of the route, uh, the signposting that is there, the fact that the route will be maintained, that undergrowth will be beaten down from time to time, um, that, that kind of thing, and that accommodation is beginning to emerge along the route. However, the pragmatic way in which the route was put together was in fact to essentially say that the old road kind of ran southeast, kind of started somewhere around the Calais area and kind of ended somewhere near Pontalier in the Jura. And so any pathway that roughly goes in this direction <laughs> and had pre-existing signs on it uh, has been now dubbed the GR 145 and or the Via Francigena. And unfortunately, this means it's kind of a zigzag path and it kind of loses its historical relationship to the Roman roads that were there in the past. So it's not so hard to follow. So there is slightly more accommodation on the JR 145, but you add maybe uh, 10 to 15 days worth of walking over what would really, really be necessary. In our books, we've tried to reflect what we think is something closer to the historic route, as well as respecting all the work that's been done um, by the, the people building the, the JR. In England, it's a very simple story. There's only 35 kilometres of path that was an existing path <laughs> that went, uh, went from Canterbury to, uh, to Dover. doesn't, in fact, follow the Roman road, but it's there, so we just, it was just called the uh, Via Francigena. And it's, it's a pleasant walking path and is probably about as close as you could get to the Roman road, which is now um, something like an interstate. <laughs> you mentioned accommodation and how it's really developed in Italy. And it's been striking to me seeing that development. I was last there in 2014. And as you said, it's pretty easy to find a place almost every night that is affordable and geared towards pilgrims, at least to some degree. And beyond just having a place to sleep, I've really been struck by the hospitality in many of the accommodations along the way, which was, has been very memorable. What are some of your favorite places for hospitality on the Via Francigena? I, I tried to put my mind around this. And, <laughs> uh, you know, when we were talking um, earlier about uh, what drew us to doing this kind of thing, and I said that it's really how you interact with people in a common situation or a situation of need and the fact that you build relationships with people that are outside your normal your normal existence mm -hmm. and so you know the places that I uh, I tend to think about are places where I've met people that have left a particular a particular mark on me a small story. Um, there's a town in the middle of the rice fields of of the Po Valley called Santia. Yeah, it's a pretty undistinguished town, uh, notable by having two motorways and a high speed uh, rail track whizzing <laughs> beside it. And after a pretty long day, uh, 
Babette and I are walking down the high street. She's riding a horse and I'm uh, on a bike because our other horse at the time had gone uh, gone sick. And we're at that time in the evening where we're wondering where on earth we're going to stay and what the evening is going to bring for <laughs> A guy cruises up on Babette's shoulder in a red sports car and uh, begins to chat in Italian. And, uh, of course, all the defense mechanisms come into play. But he's got a kind of got an engaging manner. And he says, hey, you know, I've got this ranch thing. Do you want to park your horse there? Oh, we're going, you know, this is a bit dangerous, isn't it? But then, okay, there were two of us together, so, uh, you know, there's not too much to lose. Hmm. So we follow the guy along. Would you believe he has a ranch? I mean, not not a farm. He has a ranch. Hmm. It has a sheriff office. It has a jail. <laughs> it has a restaurant. It has a corral and all of these kind of things. And Roberto has a little business. He retired from the uh, Italian military. Uh, kind of sad story after his son was killed. And he established this restaurant, this place. And uh, as part of his life motivation uh, he was offering some accommodation and some work to a few refugees from Eastern Europe while trying to make a living by running a little restaurant and uh, he invites us in uh, he sets some beds together uh, we sleep he feeds us better than we've uh, we're probably fed for most of that uh, most of that journey and refuses to take any any payment uh, for it. So that's a kind of thing. I, I don't think I recommend that. I don't think we have it on any of our accommodation lists. But those are the things get, that get memorable. If you want to be more um, uh, straight down the middle, I guess, hmm. there is, uh, we may get on to this later, but I'm, I'm very much um, of a view that when I do these things, I do it for the process of the traveling rather than for the end point when, when you get there. Mm -hmm. And for me, the, the most enjoyable end point of the Francigena is there is a hostel in Formello. Mm. It's part of the uh, old um, town hall. And there they have really taken the Francigena to heart. And they built a glass staircase yeah. with steps named after every stage of the roof that leads into a viewpoint from which you can see essentially Rome cover the horizon ahead of you. Hmm. That for me is a, is a kind of a high point. It's um, a bit like uh, Lavacol on the approach to, uh, to Santiago. It's also a place where you can get well cleaned up <laughs> and ready for your, uh, for your approach to, to Rome. There are other uh, great places along the way. As I say, typically the religious institutions tend to exist more in Italy. Mm -hmm. In Radicofani, there is a branch of the St. James Society that runs the hostel there where you can go through a full foot washing ceremony, if that's your thing. In Bolsena, there's a beautiful convent 
that is run by a group of nuns that are so caring for the people that, mm. that arrive there and it's right on the kind of main square beside the Basilica in, uh, in Bolsena. For drama, then at the top of the Colgran Sambana, there is the uh, hospice, uh, most notable, I always think, for having the mortuary next door to it, where <laughs> the uh, travellers that didn't find their St. Bernard dog and the brandy uh, soon enough uh, tended to spend the rest of their days. Back in France, uh, France is developing. I have to say that a lot of the time I tend to find uh, one-star, two-star hotels or chambres d'hôtes, um, bed and breakfast places, which for individuals can be a little expensive if you're doing many nights. But if you're able to share the cost of a room with a companion, then it, it's not so bad. But there's a wonderful story of a friend and mine and myself made the journey in 2014 and arrived in the township of Langres, which is one of these fortified hilltop towns in the, the, the east of France. And it had been a very long day for us. And as is my want, I tend not to book ahead, which is not, not the best thing I'd recommend sometimes because I'm usually in a bit of a hurry then I want to press on and I don't want to commit too soon if I think I can maybe travel further. So we arrive in Long and we're at the cathedral at 7.30 at night. We've just cycled 120 kilometers and we're tired, particularly after the long climb hmm. to Long. And there are two rooms in a presbytery there that are offered to pilgrims. Really fine. And as luck would have it, they'd already been taken. And Long is also a little bit of a tourist stop, and every hotel in the town is taken. But there's a farm run by some nuns about two or three kilometres outside the town that has uh, accommodation there. And so I have to say, not the priest, but the priest's housekeeper from the cathedral offered to try to negotiate for us an entry there. And guess what? All the accommodation there is full uh, again. But the most curious thing, the three nuns that run the farm have their own little house. And they wouldn't let us go cold, so they moved in together in, a, in one bedroom and gave us two bedrooms in their house wow. to sleep in. So the, um, the Femme Saint Anne, it's called, just outside Long, uh, rests very warm in my, in my, in my mind. Do you have a favorite stretch of walking or riding on the Via Francigena? Is there a particular region or multi-day stretch that you really find enjoyable? One can't ignore Tuscany. It is, on a global scale, um, a very, very impressive stretch of landscape. There are two less known parts that are slightly before and slightly after it, which always kind of give me a kick. The town of Radicofani uh, is a long climb uh, from the valley of the Quirico River, uh, but the morning descent from uh, Radicofani uh, towards Aquapendente has just the most magnificent open views mm. in front of you, and I, I really, really enjoy that. Um, a little uh, further north, just before you reach the border with Tuscany, there is the uh, Chiesa Pass. Mm -hmm. And even a little before the Chiesa Pass, uh, one begins to break out of the 
flat plains of the Po Valley and then into, if you like, the uh, Apennine foothills. And on a sunny day, that is uh, really beautiful. For pilgrim atmosphere, the place that I, I really uh, like best is uh, shortly after leaving Chalon on Champagne, there's a stretch of Roman road which has not been tarmacked. Uh, has not been developed uh, any more than some gravel spread over it. And it stretches over um, cereal fields uh, as far as the eye can see. It is extremely isolated and in the summer can be very hot, a little like the Meseta or something like that. But for the sense of isolation and uh, something close to medieval pilgrimage, you get a real sense of being on your own and going in, uh, going on the antique road. Mm-hmm. There are, of course, stretches of real uh, vestiges of the uh, Roman paving stones and the like in and around uh, uh, Viterbo and Montefiascone and that's quite amazing when you realize you're treading on the stone hmm. that was laid 2,000 years before and it still works perfectly adequately. It's uh, yeah, quite good. This pilgrimage thing means different things to different people. I've talked about, you know, the thing it means for me tends to be about making relationships up and getting other points of view. But it's also a sort of reflective period as well. And if you're spending a lot of time uh, essentially living in your in your head, then um, you need something to feed that. Mm. And of course, following the Romans, much of uh, northern France has been the place of many conflicts over the years. And um, walking through Picardy, where every three miles you'll find a cemetery from the First World War with too many crosses in it of too many young men. I wouldn't say it's a pleasant place to be, but it certainly helps to prime the mind to think about, you know, what's important in in life, yeah. Let's talk about arriving in Rome, because it's a really different experience from that of arriving in Santiago. You know, in Santiago, obviously, there are lots of tourists, but there are so many pilgrims who have arrived on foot, on bike, the occasional on horseback. But in Rome, you are immediately overwhelmed by the magnitude of tourists and car pilgrims, those pilgrims who've flown in. How can walking pilgrims or or others who've traveled on the Via Francigena get the most out of their time in Rome? So I I, I might not be the very best person to to address this question too, but the final approach to Rome is one of the least pleasant parts of the entire journey because it, Rome is a big city with a lot of traffic. And I've tried to repeatedly find uh, pleasant walking routes into Rome and they've been variously blocked and difficulties. So you're going to have a pretty rough time on over the last 15 kilometers or so into Rome. For me, a high spot though in approaching Rome is Monte Mario which is a park on one of the hills that surround Rome. And you get a most wonderful view of the entire city, including the Vatican. I kind of feel I've done it when I've got there. Um, hmm. Okay, one walks down and uh, as far as uh, St. Peter's Square and the testimonium is available. And uh, if you are of a, um, of a faith, um, then there will be masses in the cathedral. 
and you may be lucky enough to have a tour of the catacombs and what have you beneath St. Peter's. Majority of sites in Rome are subject, I think, to overuse. There's just too many tourists around, and so... Yes, uh, to walk near the Colosseum, the Trevi Fountain, the temples is good, but uh, having been in a sort of contemplative mode of isolation for some while, it's a bit of a, a bit of a culture shock. Mm-hmm. I'd say perhaps one of the places I've I've found um, more satisfying is if you um, go to the south of Rome, then there you'll find the ancient Via Appia. Mm-hmm. And on the Appia, there is probably one of the best stretches of true Roman road with the basalt, pentagon basalt block still firmly in place. And you can pass by the point where St. Peter faced the question of Quo Vadis uh, and chose to turn back to Rome and uh, meet his, his end there. That for me is probably somewhat in the spirit of pilgrimage because what it does say as the road goes on says something about decisions you have to make in your life and kind of mystical stuff like that. This isn't really related to the Via Francigena, but I'm interested in the fact that you often travel via horseback on pilgrimage. And I'm just curious for some insights from you on what that's like. What is it like to travel with your horses? I think if we had more time in our lives, we would do much more of it. It's quite hard. We probably on the horses cover not much more distance than a regular walking pilgrim would every day. And we have rather more challenges, uh, trying to find places to put horses, trying to find food for them. Mm-hmm. August on the Maseta, there isn't an awful lot of um, uh, food around for uh, two hungry horses. Why would you choose to do it? <laughs> there's, what, there's one uh, argument that Babette would put up if she were here, is it means I don't have to carry that damn backpack. <laughs> if we can hang that off the side of the horse. There's another thing that we're kind of, I don't know, a bit animal-oriented or something like that. And when you live 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week for three months with a pair of horses, you kind of develop a, a relationship where they do things for you which are kind of unreasonable. And uh, yeah, you, in return, you do you do things for them. For me, I also go back to this point about, for me, uh, pilgrimage is about creating relationships, getting in contact with people. The horses are very disarming when you turn up and ask for some help. You know, there aren't too many muggers that arrive on a, <laughs> on horseback these days anyway. Uh, so what you tend to find is that it's conversation making, it's solution making, uh, it's, it's friendship making in, in, in having them along. I think I've mentioned we've got some project in Africa that's going to take us away from all of those things for a couple of years. But I think if we're still in good shape when we get back, we'll be doing more of the same. I mean, the the final point is it is possible. We we did go to Santiago. We did go to Rome. We did go to St. Peter's Square on horseback. And uh, it can be done, but not without risk to to you and, and to your horse as well. How can people find your work and learn more about it? Uh, www.pilgrimage.com.
publications, point com, uh, no uh, punctuation in the middle of that. Uh, there's a list of books that we've written and uh, ones that others have written on the Via Francigena, on the Via Domitia, which is a part of the historical triangle of pilgrimage we haven't really talked much about, but it's a component of the base of the triangle that would link, shall we say, Canterbury with Santiago and Rome. On parts of the St. James Way, we've just uh, put a light foot guide out for the Via Pudiensis. <laughs> goes from Le Puy to, uh, in our case, Ron Savalis. And uh, we have a few storybooks on there of things that we've done in the past. And uh, we're working collaboratively with a number of other authors that have, we, th we think, something to offer the marketplace. We try always to, if we can, to not just be the same, so we kind of focus on the routes that are less well-known, try to help them get developed. This little business that I created to publish the books survives only by the money we get out of selling the books. We kind of primed it with some of our own money, and now it's kind of paying us back a little bit that every new route and every new book gets funded out of the pot that, that's there. So we're... We're not in it for um, dividends or anything of the sort. Kim Wilson is in Melbourne, Australia, and she walked the Via Francigena from Canterbury to Rome in 2013, and she's with me now. Thanks for talking to me about your experience on the Via Francigena, Kim. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. What first drew you to the Via Francigena? Why did you walk this route? Um, it's a little bit of an extended story, actually. It was um, a number of, I guess, coincidences or just um, threads that kind of led me to discover it in the first place um, because I had never been really that interested in walking. I didn't think it was a, a great form of exercise or anything like that. I was more into boxing and things that were hard. <laughs> um, but I um, had taken a sabbatical from my job back in in um, 2009 and I um, basically spent a year around um, Southeast Asia and I love scuba diving. I did my dive master and instructor um, and I'd spent a lot of time outdoors and I came back to Melbourne to contract for six months and I um, yeah, I just found that I really struggled being back in an office, um, even catching the train to work. It was feeling a bit claustrophobic. So I started walking to work. I was um, fortunate that I was close to the city and I only had to walk. Um, it was about four kilometers a day. And I discovered that I really enjoyed walking and watching the seasons change. And we have some beautiful parks here that I, I could walk through the, our big Melbourne cricket ground and Fitzroy Gardens and through autumn that's just beautiful when the when the leaves change so I really enjoyed it and it actually just it, it really made a difference to my working day being able to do that I was just contracting and so I basically lived between Melbourne and and Thailand on and off for a few years and my ex-boyfriend was Italian and so one summer I went to, to Italy to spend summer with him but I had about a week to myself before I was going to meet him 
And so I've gone, I've got this week, what am I, what am I going to do with that week? And I started just exploring some different ideas. And I'd been to Italy a number of years before, and I knew that I wanted to go to Tuscany. I, but then I've started exploring, oh, maybe Cinque Terre. And then I went, well, now that I like walking, maybe I could walk a bit of the, you know, the Camino Francis. Um, and I just started exploring these ideas. And I ruled out Cinque Terre at that time. I can't remember why. And I was really contemplating a section, like just walking maybe a week of Camino Francis. And I just started researching, exploring online. And when I was looking, I was kind of going, oh, it's not really the right direction and it's only a week. And But when I was looking, there was this advertisement on a website for Via Francigena. And I'm like, what is this Via Francigena? I probably, I don't even know what I called it then, probably said Via Francigena or something. But I just clicked on this link and I'm like, oh, okay. It's um, it's this other pilgrimage route I'd never heard of and started exploring it. And it was, it was an advertisement for an organized one of those ones where, you know, they'll book the accommodation for you and, and take you back. But I looked and they had this section um, that went through Tuscany from San Mignato to San Quirico d'Orcia. And I'm like, oh, I could walk through Tuscany. I wasn't particularly interested in doing a touristy get on and off the bus type thing to see Tuscany. I thought, oh, it's not how I really wanted to see it. But I'm going, well, maybe, maybe I could walk. And I thought it was a bit crazy because I was – just a city walker. I had never done hiking or I'd never done a long distance walk or anything before. And this was 120 kilometers. Um, but I sat with the idea for a week and then decided, you know, I'm just going to go and do it. And so I did. So that was kind of how I found Via Francigena. Yeah, I went and did that walk for the week. <laughs> I didn't last the week. I did um, the last day I actually had to stop because I couldn't get my feet back into my shoes. They were so swollen. And it was beyond anything that I could have imagined. I realized it wasn't just a walk um, through Tuscany, but I loved it. And even at the very end, I just said to myself, I want to walk the whole trail one day. From there, so 120 kilometers, and you, and even that, you didn't quite finish what you no. planned. From there, you get this idea to do the whole thing from Canterbury to Rome. That's, you know, most people listening are maybe planning for a journey of one to five weeks, and yours spanned three months how do you prepare yourself mentally and physically for a trip of that kind of duration? When I decided to go and walk the whole thing, it was a couple of years later and I was unexpectedly made redundant from a job. And so I sat for a couple of weeks going, well, what am I going to do now? And I just didn't feel to go and get a job straight away. And I knew I'd, I'd had this you know, dream of walking the whole trail and I just went, well, why don't you just go and do it now? You've got the time to do it. And so I decided to go and I, I literally left like 10 weeks later. So I only had 10 weeks to prepare for it. And yes, I walked that week um, a couple of years earlier, but you know, I did have my main bag transported from place to place. I just carried a day pack. So I really didn't know very much at all. So I, I had to start, re I started researching, you know, bags and stuff to take and um, all that sort of thing. And the, I think I already knew the, the guidebook that I was going to use because I used the Lightfoot guides um, back in 2011. But I started walking, like I looked up for like walking plans and stuff like that. So I thought, oh, yeah, I've got to start getting um, walking fit and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, walking maybe 20 kilometers a couple of times a week. And then I started doing it back to back. And then I started adding my bag. I mean, I was 
pretty fit at that time because I was also boxing um, about five times a week. So I was physically fit. There's probably an element of mental fitness with that as well because I I was sparring and you've trying to push through when it when it's hard and, and stuff like that. I, I had a little bit of that discipline from from boxing, but ultimately what I discovered and I, I think you know people have different ideas about it, but I. The actual walking itself when I started was the training. It's nothing that I did really prepared me for it, I don't think. And I was surprised that I thought my body would adjust after maybe a couple of weeks, but it was hard on my body the whole way. And I was packed a little bit heavy and I thought maybe that was part of the reason, but in hindsight, not not so much. Um, there's a lot of stuff around biomechanics and the way we move and particularly when you my career has been, you know, in an office. So I've been sitting at desks and stuff a lot. So the way that I sit and the shortening of muscles and my posture affects the way I move, um, which contributed a lot, I think, to some of the pain I was experiencing now from what I want to understand with some injuries I've had since. But yeah, the walking itself was the training. Mm. <laughs> so if I was going to go again, I probably wouldn't be so hung up on on training. I eased myself into it as best I could, given that in France there was still quite some long distances early up um, that I didn't feel well. I didn't feel I could necessarily avoid because I wasn't sure that I was going to make it all the way within the Schengen visa timeframe. But yeah, just ease ease into the walking and build up the kilometers that way would be the way that I would do it again. So take me back to the beginning. You get mm -hmm. to Canterbury. That's where your pilgrimage starts. What do you remember from those initial moments in Canterbury? Like, what were you feeling? Well, I mean, it was just a funny day because I had been in London visiting a friend of mine and um, she lived just outside of London in Blackheath. And I'd sorted out how to get the bus from Blackheath to get to Lewisham and then get the bus down to Canterbury. And it all started not going to plan from the beginning, really. I just, I went to the wrong bus stop and I didn't realize I went to the wrong bus stop. So then I lost, I, I missed my bus and then I had to try and find the bus stop in Lewisham, which wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't easy. I just couldn't find it. <laughs> And then I finally got on a bus and, and got down to, to Canterbury. Um, and I just kind of went, all right, so this is just how it's going to be. You know, things aren't going to go to plan. You're going to be lost. It'll be like that. And I'm just going to have to cope. But yeah, I got to Canterbury and yeah, I was probably quietly excited. It was probably a little, a little bit of nervousness. I'm not sure. You know, looking back, I just, I didn't really have any real understanding of what I was getting myself into, I guess. I had a had that one week taster, but it was just, that was a completely different experience and walking the whole thing. But I'd arranged to get a bless, a pilgrim blessing from Canon Clare at Canterbury Cathedral. Um, and so literally I arrived in Canterbury and dropped my bag off uh, where I was staying and went and met um, Canon Clare and had the blessing there, which was really special for me. And it was, yeah, just a beautiful way to start the pilgrimage. And then it was, yeah, just have a look around Canterbury and, and waiting because I was going to start walking the next day. And so from there, your walk took you through four different countries. And that's unusual. You know, most pilgrims who are listening, who are walking the Camino de Santiago, maybe they are in France for a night, maybe they're in Portugal if they're walking the Portuguese, but most of them are just going to be in one country, two max. And you went through England, France, Switzerland, Italy. Did, did each have a different feel or how did the experience change as you moved from one country to the next? I guess because it's 
changing all the time that you don't notice like didn't always have that distinct feeling oh well you know except yes of going from England to France I'm suddenly having to try and speak French <laughs> so it's like there's that the, the language element and then I'm um, going from Switzerland into Italy and going all right I've got to stop speaking French and I've got to start trying to remember some Italian and I couldn't remember any words I just had French in my in my head but with the landscape there's just like this subtle changing all the time and I think that's where you know some people have I've heard some people People complain about walking through France being boring and for me it was never never boring because every day I'm getting up and I'm walking to some new unknown place so there's something new to see in every moment basically but the landscape is often quite the same for a number of days and if you're walking through a section that maybe is quite flat and there's not a lot around then I would understand why some people might see so that was boring but there's always this kind of subtle um, changing so maybe you're going through farmland for quite some time and then walking through the Champagne region in France it's like vineyards and vineyards and vineyards for quite a number of days I guess it is yeah different in the in the different countries I think of France being and it wasn't completely flat but I do think of it as being more flat and um, more kind of countryside kind of walking and then Switzerland of course you when you get to see the Alps and you just go oh my god I've got to walk across these massive mountains and they're just phenomenal when you when when you see them. It's like when I kind of got there and Lake Geneva was covered in fog and stuff, and it's like it it moved, and then you finally see these mountains and go, oh, they're just um, incredible. And then Italy itself, like the landscape, just changes quite a lot from you know once you once you cross in after Gran San Bernardo and then down Dykeport. It's always changing, so there's always something different to see. And everyone, I think, has their different preferences about what they they like. I loved the whole route, but I do have particular love of Italy, so that's probably my favorite country to be in. Let's go a little bit deeper into that. Like when you close your eyes and think back on the Via Francigena, what do you see? Are there certain places or vistas that stick out in your memory? It's people that come to me first Hmm. because I walked alone. So I didn't see, I ran into a pilgrim I was a week in and, and he was walking from Besançon up to, to Canterbury. And so I saw one French guy a week in and then I ran into a couple in rice fields in Vercelli, but I didn't see any other pilgrims until nine days out of Rome. And so I walked the whole route by myself. And so what comes to mind is pilgrim angels, I guess, like people who would just turn up along the route. So my locals who I'd have an interaction with and often misunderstandings trying to speak French and Italian, but they were, would cheer me on. So, you know, I, I distinctly remember people like this old guy who stopped in the car in the middle of a road in France and, um, you know, because I've got this bag on, I probably looked a mess, but he's wanting to know who I was and we have this strange conversation. It was just really, really funny. And this old Italian nonna who was just standing out the front of her apartment and I was having a particularly hard day and, um, you know, and she saw me and she's like, oh, you know, come in. Sola, sei brava. And 
you know, really cheered me on. So I do remember people along the way. But um, in terms of vistas, I mean, I remember walking, you know, sections of the old Roman road through France where it's like this massive line of road. You can see it going through the wind farms and just goes on and on. When I walked um, to Bourg-Saint-Pierre in Switzerland, I arrived in a snowstorm. <laughs> it started snowing. It dumped the first snow about 30 minutes before I arrived. And in Melbourne, it doesn't snow here. And I've been to the snow a couple of times here, but it hasn't snowed. So it was the first time I'd seen snow fall. And I was absolutely mesmerized by it going, I'd never seen anything quite so, so beautiful. Crossing into Italy, walking through the Aosta Valley, I had no idea about the Aosta Valley and I was just blown away. It's just so stunning, just absolutely incredible. And then, you know, the last nine days of my journey holds a special place in my heart because I walk with a couple of guys into Rome, Peter and Paulus. Just, yeah, it was a a lot of fun to be able to share part of the journey with people and with them. Mm. One of my favourite spots that has come to rival for me that stretch over the Alps is in the Apennines, which I think a lot of people overlook and are just great walking. And particularly the day from Bercetto to Pontremoli over Chisa Pass, mm, I just, it's, it's yeah. incredible, like the, the vistas that you have um, across <laughs> the region from there. I had no vistas because, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I couldn't actually walk up to Grand San Bernardo Pass because of the snow. Mm. It had dumped 30 centimetres. I'm just not experienced walking through snow. I didn't have snowshoes. I was walking alone. So I, I actually caught the bus and didn't walk that bit. And I was incredibly disappointed about it. But I've gone, I just I have to put safety first. And the locals were telling me, don't walk. And so then when I get to the Apennines and Actually, I thought I thought the Apennines would be easy after the Alps because the Alps were a lot of like there was a lot of narrow mule trails and stuff like that. I thought, oh yeah, the Apennines would be easy, and I get there and I'm going, oh my goodness, they were really <laughs> it was really hard to walk over. A lot of rocky, uneven ground and steep and muddy. I had a lot of mud to deal with as well. But the day I crossed Chisa Pass, I did it in a massive thunderstorm, and <laughs> so I saw nothing. <laughs> really um but rain and i had lightning coming down around me i had i decided just to keep walking and push on i thought i just had a feeling if i get off the pass it would clear and it, and it did but i was crossing the pass in this storm and i was literally praying please keep me safe just keep me safe keep me safe i hid my walking poles going under my poncho thinking oh i don't want the lightning to hit them i'm going then i'm going lightning probably is more intelligent than that and going to find them beneath my poncho anyway uh, but crazy storm yeah but it's those kind of things uh, are funny memories as well there were it was partly funny at the time partly scary <laughs> <laughs> yeah pontremoli is beautiful and somewhere that i would have liked to have stayed longer as well but at that point, I had already decided that I was going to detour to Cinque Terre for a few days from Sazana. Um, and so I'm like, I just want to push on and, and get there and get to the sea. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, you're going to have to go back in the summer just to just to go back to those spots and get them in good weather because, uh, yeah. yeah, they're pretty awesome. One of the common complaints that I've heard of the Via Francigena, and this is usually from people who've walked the Camino Frances, is that it feels like less of a pilgrimage because there are fewer pilgrims, there isn't as much pilgrim-centric accommodation. So to them, it it feels different. How would you respond to that? 
it probably does feel different now. I have I haven't walked Camino sure. Francis, so I, I cannot compare directly. But I have, you know, I've seen I know people who have, and I have seen photos, and I understand there's a, there's a lot more people that walk it. Like you are literally unlikely to walk a day alone if you don't want to. And so my experience would be a French agent that was completely different. I I walked like seventy I had seventy seven days by myself um, without seeing another pilgrim. But that was part of the attraction for me was to just go from place to place and find my own way and have that quiet and that solitude. I might say like if I was doing Camino Francis, it would be less of a pilgrimage for me because it's too organized. It would be too easy with accommodation and stuff like that. Some of the um, challenges you have is finding accommodation when you arrive and having to try and speak French or speak Italian and communicate with locals um, what you need and what you're looking for and, uh, and ask for help. But it was an incredible journey for me. And, you know, and I learned a lot about myself and life in, in that process. And so I, I just think it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful route to walk, and all the you know different places that you you get to to walk through. That I just can't imagine it could be any less of a pilgrimage than anywhere else because it's what you it's what you want to get out of it. Um, so it's all up to to your mindset, I guess. If you're going to think it's not much of a pilgrimage, then maybe that's what you get. I don't I don't know. Mm. Um, reading through your blog, it was interesting to me that. You know, you have this really long journey, but then you seemed at your weakest and most vulnerable in the days immediately prior to your arrival in Rome. You know, after months of walking, I would have thought you'd be at your fittest. And instead, you seem to be, um, again, at your most vulnerable. What do you recall of that stretch and what made it so challenging? Look, I'd, I'd pushed pretty hard from the beginning because I just... When I'd mapped it out and used the Lightfoot Guide to map it out, I've gone, I thought it was going to take me, I thought it was about 91 days without rest days or something to get to, to Rome um, once I hit France. And so with the Schengen visa, you've got 90 days. And when you leave, you can't leave and reset it. It's 90 days in a six-month period. So I've gone, if I'm going to walk it in one stretch, this is it. And I wasn't sure that I'd be able to do it. So I pushed I pushed pretty hard through France to make sure that I could. Um, and so I'd walked, you know, I walked two weeks before I had a rest day. And then I walked another two weeks before I had a rest day, which was probably maybe a little bit too much for my body. It probably needed to be eased in a little bit more. But it's a very long journey and there was very long, long distances. Um, so it did take its toll. And I just think I probably got a little bit run down as well. It was I, I was walking in autumn towards winter and it started getting very cold. Um, and so once I'd crossed into, I noticed it really when I crossed into Italy, I was particularly cold and a lot of the accommodation didn't have the heating switched on either. And I just, I feel the cold a lot. So it probably made me a little bit run down, but I, I'd been fighting off a cold or something for a, a number of weeks. And then, you know, I think it was about five days from Rome. I couldn't fight it off any longer. And I just got this, well, it was worse than a, a cold. It was like a flu or something. And I just kept walking through it basically. It was one day when I was really struggling uh, and I pushed a little bit because I was with Peter and Paul as well. But there was one day when I just, well, you know, the guys, they could walk, they could actually walk faster than me. They were nice and slowed down <laughs> a bit. But there was one day where we arrived somewhere for lunch and I've gone, I really can't, I can't go on today. I just, I, I can't do anymore. And so we stayed, we stayed there and walked the next day. But yeah, I was just, just run down and couldn't fight this cold off and the cold and 
I started laughing when you said you were walking with Peter and Paulus because it almost sounded symbolic. Um. Well, this is, well, this is one of my favorite parts of it, that the fact that I'd say I go, technically I walked into Rome with Peter and Paul. Like, Paul, <laughs> Paulus was from Lithuania, Peter was from Denmark. And, yeah, I've got, <laughs> I couldn't believe that I, you know, yeah, I'd met, met these guys and that's who I was walking into Rome with. Yeah, and in you go, you arrive in Rome at St. Peter's Square after mm-hmm. almost three months on the road. What did that feel like as you crossed through the pillars and into St. Peter's Square? It was joyful but surreal. It's, you know, when we were walking into St. Peter's, Mass had must have finished about, you know, 20 minutes or something, 30 minutes earlier. So the crowds were still coming out. And I'd said to um, Peter and Paul, it's like, all right, I'm putting some music on. It's time to dance walk into St. Peter's Square because but prior to me meeting them, sometimes when I, you know, harder days, I'd put some music on and I kind of, I would walk, but I, I called it dance walking and have a bit of a bop as I was, as I was going to kind of, keep my enthusiasm up and keep going. Um, so I dance walked into St. Peter's Square through the crowds. I'm going, I don't care if I look like a complete crazy person. I've walked all this way. I'm going to celebrate going in like that. And then walk in and, I mean, St. Peter's Square is just an incredible, incredible place to be. I think no matter how many times you've been there, it's those buildings and how old everything is just incredible. But I was also very sick, so I just wanted to sit down. <laughs> It's like it's kind of like oh we here you you do get this point where you go oh we're here now 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 what <laughs> now what do you do it's it's a strange feeling in a way because you have this rhythm with your walking where you know you get up every day and you walk and you find accommodation and you rest and then you get up the next day and you walk again and suddenly you've arrived and it's over and that rhythm stops and it's like well life goes on still, doesn't it? It's like we still have to find accommodation and um, take care of, you know, our bodies and, and those needs. Um, but, yeah, it was it was a little bit surreal to kind of be there and just go and really fully, I guess, acknowledge and feel in my body, I've walked over 2,000 kilometres and I'm here. What advice would you offer to a pilgrim who's planning a similar trek on the Via, thinking about going all the way through Canterbury to Rome? If it's something that calls to you, if there's something about it that attracts you to it, but you're scared or uncertain and hesitant, is kind of go with what's attracting you to it and and go and do it. You know, there's no right or wrong way to do pilgrimage. Like I think some people get hung up on it and, you know, and it's, you, you know, got to stay at all the pilgrim accommodation. And no, there's lots of pilgrims who do be a Frenchie, you know, who are a bit more luxury and stay at nice <laughs> nicer hotels and stuff along the way do it the way that feels right to you because it's your pilgrimage it's it's your journey i don't think you have to be as prepared as you think you have to be you put so much time and effort into planning all the right stuff and at the end of the day it's just walking you just get up and you walk to the next place and you learn along the way that you don't need everything that you think you need. And so yeah, I know I've read the stories of people on Camino Francis and they, they start getting rid of stuff and sending it back, back home. Um, it's a little bit a little bit similar, I guess, with Via Francigena, except I kept most of my layers because I was so cold. <laughs> I didn't end up getting rid of a lot except the tent. You know, one of my favourite sayings is where, where there's a will, there's a way. And if you want to do something, 
you'll either find a way or the, the you know uh, you'll meet people and things will come to you that will help to support you in the journey as well i think people get maybe a little bit put off on walking france because there's less accommodation it goes through a not very touristic area and there's one part where you know there's really very limited options in accommodation you have to walk the longer distances but you, you can find accommodation and it, and it just it just comes together so I would say, yeah, people really have this sense that the route calls to them just to go and do it. And even if you just want to do a, a week or a couple of weeks at a time go and piece it together like a lot of people do is to, to do it. I, I would go and walk it again tomorrow if I could. I just loved the, the whole journey. And I know it wouldn't be exactly the same as um, when I did it in 2013, but uh, it's something that I would definitely do again. Your blog was awesome, and it's still online, and you're developing it into a, a book, right? Yes. So where can people find this info? I moved a lot. So I still have my original blog in place, but I've got my own website, which is kimwilson.com.au, and that's Kim with a Y. And so I've got a lot of information on there as well to help people if they're wanting to plan their pilgrimage, um, just stuff that I learned and had put, put together. So I know it, it's difficult to plan. There's not always a lot of information. You've got to try and source it from different places and, and speak to people. And yes, I've been working on my book for a while, but because it's not just just a, like a day by day, it, I mean, it is quite chronological, but it tells the larger story of how I actually came to walk that path and, and why I've been really taking my time on that because um, it's a story that's really important to me to, to share in, in the best way as, as I can. So that's still a work in progress, but I'm hoping maybe I, I was hoping to finish it this year, but um, I'm also studying. So it's realistically, it could be next year, I think, before I actually release it. Thanks for talking with me about your Via Francigena experience. Oh, thanks, Dave. It's been a pleasure. So are you interested? Are you thinking about a pilgrimage on the Via Francigena, a walk to Rome, and wondering how to get started? Well, here are a few suggestions. First, get a guidebook. And there are two primary English language guidebooks to the Via Francigena available. There's Paul and Babette's The Lightfoot Guides, and there are three volumes, so the full route from Canterbury is split across three books. And as Paul said, you can find those at pilgrimagepublications.com. And Alison Raju has also published a guide for Cicerone, which is my publisher, and it's split across two volumes. And both of those books are available both in hard copy and in ebook, and they take different approaches to the route. So check them out online and see which format you prefer. But uh, I've walked using the Lightfoot guide and and ha- trusted a great deal. And Allison is uh, is 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 a stalwart uh, guidebook writer and uh and so she has published a number of different guides so she's also quite reliable once you have a guidebook and you've flipped around and you've thought about your route a bit it's worth considering whether you have the time to walk all the way from canterbury or if you need to consider a shorter option keep in mind that if you are walking from canterbury as kim mentioned Those of us coming from outside of the EU may be dependent upon the Schengen visa for entry, and that limits us to three months. And 
for some that may be problematic. You might have a hard time doing the full distance in three months. And so you may need to split it over the course of a couple of different trips. If you're looking for something comparable in length to the Camino Frances, here's what I've done with my students. We fly into Geneva and we take the train from the airport uh, down to either Vevey or Montreux, so somewhere on the eastern side of Lake Geneva. And that's where we start our walk from, uh, either in Montreux or Lake Geneva, depending upon the year. There's a youth hostel in Montreux that's right on the lake and is a great place to start from if you uh, are, are looking for a, a, a semi-budget option. There really are no budget options on Lake Geneva, but that's as close as you get. And from Lake Geneva, we have the walk up to the top of the Alps, and we typically take four days to get to Grand Saint Bernard Pass, where you hang out at the hospice that's been taking care of pilgrims for a thousand years, where St. Bernard dogs were bred and used to help travelers as they navigated this pass. And then we descend through the Aosta Valley, and we typically will walk into Ivrea, which is a beautiful town uh, on a river where um, there's actually a very popular river kayaking spot. And we will usually stop our walk in Ivrea, and then we'll catch uh, a couple of trains. And this is the only route we do with students where we don't walk every step of the way, but we really like the Alps. And the issue is that between Ivrea and where we start up again, it's uh, pretty flat and there are a lot of rice paddies. And it's, for me, not the most exciting stretch of walking ever. It's compensated for by a great deal of genuine pilgrim hospitality. And so if you have the time to walk through there, I think you'll find yourselves well cared for. But for us, we typically take the train from Ivrea to Milan, and we'll spend a couple of hours in Milan, go visit the cathedral. And then we take another train to Parma, which also has a great church and a really wonderful baptistry next to it. And so we'll spend a few hours there. And then we take a very short train on to Fornovo di Taro. And that's where we resume our walk on the Via Francigena, and uh, what's fun, at least for me as a mountain person, is we basically go from the tail end of the Alps into the beginning of the Apennine Mountains. And so from there, a beautiful walk begins. And we'll usually walk a few kilometers from Fornovo to Civizzano and spend the night there and be on our way. And then we continue on on foot all the way into Rome. And that itinerary takes us about a month, and you could very happily do it in five weeks, I think. And it's a great time. Beautiful scenery, beautiful walking. It's harder to get your pilgrim passport, your credenziale, on site. And so it's something that you need to coordinate in advance of departure. I have had former students who have used the uh, APOC, the American Pilgrim's Credential, in Italy and, and have no trouble, 
but you can order a Via Francigena specific credential online. There are a few different sites where it's possible, including slowways.eu, that's S-L-O-ways.eu, and uh, just Google it, slowways credential, and you'll find it. It's a few euros and, and no trouble. And once you have that, then, you know, it's easier today to find stamps, although you may need to depend on uh, accommodation stamps, you know, address stamps at times to fill it in a little bit. It's uh, a beautiful walk, and uh, it's, you know, if you want something different after Santiago, as Paul said, the infrastructure is much improved in the Italian section today. There is more regular accommodation for pilgrims along the way. And for goodness sake, you get to end each day eating pizza and gelato. That's incredible. What more could you want? So if you've had enough tortilla for a little while, then move on to pizza and pasta and gelato, and you won't regret it. That's going to do it for today's episode. Thanks to Paul Chin for joining me to talk about uh, the Via Francigena. Remember that you can find his book at pilgrimagepublications.com. Thanks as well to Kim Wilson for sharing her experiences with us. And her website, again, is kimwilson.com.au, and that's Kim, K-Y-M. Check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash podcast. Write us at podcast at gmail.com and stay tuned for at least one more new episode before I head off on the Camino del Norte on uh, June 24th. That's it for now. Thanks and have a great week. <laughs>